What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. Merry Christmas. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Goldman boosting its first quarter GDP estimate to 5% growth now after President Trump signed the stimulus bill. Is the market overreacting as stocks keep surging? Dow up 325 at the highs today, we'll ask. Plus, why this recession could mean a more rapid recovery is ahead than we've seen in the past. Does that justify these market moves? We will dig into it. Plus, Wonder Woman wobbles for some. Video games go wild and the gold Bitcoin battle. Amazing. Uh, look at that price uh, for Bitcoin. But let's start with the markets overall this hour. Mike Santoli is here with more on that. And Mike, you say today has kind of a reopening feel to it. It certainly does, Kelly. Every time you think that sort of the vaccine optimism maybe got priced in, the market takes it another day. You know, I joked every day that passes presumably is a day closer when we are fully back to normal. So maybe that's a reason to buy some more. But let's take a look at the major indexes. Uh, real synchronicity here between the S&P and the Nasdaq. That happens sometimes when Apple is, uh, is a big winner. S&P officially up more more than 15% in price year to date, also up more than 70% from the March low. So those were two eclipsed today. Here is a closer look at that reopening type trade, leisure and entertainment stocks. There's an ETF for that, as we know. You see this pretty steady uh, uptrend here since about the uh, election. It also takes you back to about February 25th. So you had that initial burst lower and uh, basically recovered almost everything uh, till then. And then, of course, the flip side of that is the stay at home, work from home, work out from home type stocks have begun to roll over in a more pronounced way. Take a look at Peloton and Zoom Video. Now, they actually were a pretty good synchronicity here, too, in terms of the percent gains uh, to date, which, of course, are still massive no matter what. This is a little bit ominous for Zoom, though. That kind of rolling over action, people talking about uh, maybe you have to go back to a dis area where it just went vertical. And then just subtly, you can hardly see it there, Peloton has curled lower as well. Uh, not quite as, uh, as ominous, but something to keep an eye on, Kelly, because people uh, have not really been sure. It's very hard to calculate exactly how much of this is going to be annuity-type business at these uh, adoptions of these uh, technologies going ahead as opposed to just, uh, you know, something that we may do with while we had to. Exactly. Mike, so as we look to all these little signs of, you know, euphoria and sentiment and the chase and everything, I mean, like you said, the momentum ETF is actually down today, but at the same time, the journal is highlighting the fact that margin debt is back to all-time highs, which makes sense, right? I mean, isn't this the ultimate coincident indicator? Is this is this telling us something about the next move or, or the market's riskiness? Not a lot about the next move. I mean, I think you, you characterize it correctly. It is coincident. It's perfectly typical for margin debt to be at a record high when, in fact, the, uh, the overall equity market value is at a record high. If anything, what was conspicuous is we hadn't had a record high in margin debt going back to a couple of years as the stock market went higher. So interestingly, investors were very reluctant 
to take on more risks like that. So it fits in with the idea that the public is much more comfortable owning stocks. They have rushed in uh, to the market in a big way in the last couple of months in terms of fund flows. But the fact that there is uh, this increase in margin debt, it's not out of whack in terms of a percentage of overall market value versus what it is historically. So it fits in with the idea that people like the market, but not necessarily any kind of uh, a red flashing light for the rally. That's interesting that it's just it, that we hadn't been back to highs yet until lately. So yeah. it is. All right. So that is some catch up. Like 2018. Actually. Mike, thanks so much. All right. Yeah, we appreciate it. Mike Santoli. Uh, let's talk about the signing of the stimulus bill. Definitely giving a jolt to markets today. Also for Goldman's outlook, the firm raising its first quarter GDP forecast to 5% growth now from 3%. Remember just a few months ago, JP Morgan was thinking we might have a negative Q1, we are talking about is that double dip recession, if it continues. Uh, here to talk more about that, Nancy Tangler is Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Richard Weiss is Chief Investment Officer over multi-asset strategies at American Century Investments. Wonderful to see you both. So, Nancy, 5% GDP growth to me feels like it's now catching up with what the market's already been telling us. So the market seemed to be betting on all along we were going to get this stimulus bill. Now we've got it. Are you surprised we're not selling the fact? Well, that's a great question, Kelly, because that's often the case. But I think what, what investors are seeing is not just optimism from the stimulus bill, uh, but corporate earnings growth, uh, reopening, and, and just generally that stocks, while they've, they've run quite a bit, will begin to be supported by earnings as we go into 2021. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. There's still a lot of uncertainty. I think we get our sell-off in the first quarter when, when we start to transition uh, to the new uh, buy administration and and not for political reasons but just because it's always been thus that when you get a change in the white house stocks kind of recalibrate so i think we're ending out the year with the santa claus rally yay for stimulus and then we'll begin to see some sort of correction in the first quarter rich we're looking at kind of the end of the calendar year phenomenon also the the Georgia Senate runoffs that are looming. So more and more people are asking the question about whether that's going to kind of become the tripwire. Um, but as we know with this market, every, it climbs the wall of worry, right? If we're already asking if Georgia's going to be a tripwire, then maybe it's not going to be. I mean, what are the real risks around that event and what do you think is likely to happen there? Well, sure. As far as Georgia's concerned, you know, maybe it's a tripwire, but it's a very low one. Uh, you know, the betting sites all have... Uh, the Republicans taking the Senate. I mean, it's a three-to-one underdog for for the uh, Democrats to take over. So I don't think that's the real issue here. You know, all along it's been three things, right? The virus, the vaccine, and the stimulus. And, and the real tug of war here is between the virus and the vaccine. I think the market's appropriately priced in, as far as we know, uh, a mid-year or maybe third quarter uh, time period for reaching herd immunity. And then it's uh, presumably back to normal in 2022. So uh, we agree with Nancy. You know, in the near term, definitely some room for disappointment here. Uh, virus mutations or, or the dissemination of the vaccines, some delays or snafus. But uh, looking out, as the stock market always does, six, nine, 12 months, uh, we see a brighter future. Nancy, let's talk about what that means uh, sort of strategy-wise, investment-wise. You know, the Nasdaq is up 15 percent this quarter. I mean, it's just <laughs> astonishing. Um, but we do get, turn into this January effect where people start to get this 401k inflows coming into the market. And, you know, you often kind of get a little bit of a continuation of the recent trend. So um, tactically, what should people do here? Do they do they rotate? 
I mean, I mean, look, even energy, look at the move we've seen in energy already. So well, what's your best advice? So I'll, I'll just tell you what we're doing in our portfolios. We, we like stocks that are connected to the consumer. Consumer free cash flow is at historic highs with this new additional stimulus. We think you'll get saving in the early days, but people will begin to spend the money. So we like consumer stocks that are embracing digitization. So in the restaurant space, that would be McDonald's and Starbucks. In retail, it's Walmart and Target. And then uh, Roku and Square are another way that we think you play uh, the, the consumer improvement. And then, um, you know, the people PPP loan portion of the stimulus bill is is very important because, as we all know, small business is the driver, the engine uh, for for job growth. So that adds into our thesis on consumers. And then lastly, we think um, you'll continue to see increases in CapEx, which will improve productivity. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. I think that is going to um, be one of the things that keeps inflation muted as this economy takes off in 2021. So we like a lot of the software tech names. I know a lot of people are coming out and talking about hardware, but we still like some of the cybersecurity names and the data aggregators. And so we're overweight in that segment as well. Rich financials, industrials, materials, you're saying take your profit and growth sectors. What if you're wrong about that? I mean, in other words, what gives you the conviction to say, you know, hey, this is definitely something we're going to kind of stake our money on and uh, as opposed to trying to hang on. I mean, look at the pop in Apple today, you know, to close the year out. I mean, what gives you the conviction to say those three sectors, that's where you definitely want to be? Well, those and real estate REITs in particular, but uh, there's no question in the short term uh, with the virus surging, we're still in pandemic mode uh, and, and so tech can still benefit. But as we move from pandemic to panacea or the vaccines, this rotation that we've seen recently from growth to value, we believe has a lot more to go. Uh, in, in fact, I, I just looked at the S&P uh, value index this morning. I think it's flat year to date, uh, whereas the growth index is up, what, 30, 40 percent. So there's no question back on earnings, valuations, that value stocks in particular have a lot more room to move, especially as we see GDP estimates uh, move up from here, given the fiscal stimulus and the hopes for uh, herd immunity later this year, uh, next year. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, under, understood. Uh, that's the narrative. We appreciate it, guys, very, very much today. Richard Weiss, Nancy Tangler talking us through these markets. Again, on a strong session here as we look to close out the year. And we've got a news alert out of the bond market. Five-year bonds went up for auction top of the hour. Let's get out to Rick Santelli and see how that one went down. Rick? You know, Kelly, it's a second auction today. Today, uh, we had two years earlier, that was $58 billion. Now, $59 billion in five years did not go well. Same grade. D is in dog. Yield? At the Dutch auction, 0.394. It was higher than when issued was trading. And just to underscore, the first two auctions of this three-auction week we're going to have, well, we're already bigger just with the first two than we were with all three a year ago. We used to have $113 billion in this package. We've already auctioned $117 billion, and we still have $59 billion in seven years tomorrow. All the metrics for this auction were weak, except for direct bidders, which include things like governments, mutual funds, hedge funds. They seem to have had a presence in both the twos and the fives. I fully suspect tomorrow's seven-year auction, the longest duration, may have more participation. Kelly, back to you. All right. Rickster, thank you, sir. Rick Santelli.
tracking that action for us. Shares of Chinese tech giant Alibaba are in the spotlight once again today amid continued pressure from Chinese regulators on the company. Deirdre Bosa is here with the very latest. Deirdre, it's down, what, about 14, 15 percent now just since Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Losing some $100 billion in market cap over just a few sessions. Well, developments over the weekend, that's putting even more pressure on Jack Ma's empire. Alibaba affiliate Ant Group met with Chinese regulators that set out a five-point compliance agenda for the fintech giant that would upend its business model, one that was valued north of $300 billion just before it pulled its IPO but a month ago. Now, it includes orders to revamp its credit business and return to its roots in payments. And where Ant's loan model has been asset light, meaning that it didn't take on much of the risk, it would now have to put up more of its own capital and be regulated more like a bank. So these are big changes for this company. Now, the writing has been on the wall since late October when Jack Ma, who founded Ant as a part of Alibaba, criticized the Chinese banking system publicly. Now, he has been a rare, outspoken Chinese CEO, nicknamed the people's billionaire in the past, but this time it's been different. And Beijing has since moved to regulate Ant and launched an antitrust investigation into Alibaba. Now, we haven't heard from Ma since, and Ant falling very much in line over the weekend. In a statement, the company says that it appreciates the guidance and help and calls the rectification and opportunity to strengthen its foundation. Now, that kind of language, the recent actions, the responses, they've raised concerns that Beijing could be drifting towards a very hard line against not just Jack Ma and his companies, but big tech in China at large. And we could just be at the beginning of a tougher regulatory landscape in China. Now, at the same time, though, Kelly, we have seen in the past that Beijing's bark can be bigger than its bite. So perhaps a key question going forward is whether regulators will actually follow through with the tough talk. We have examples in the past. Many times we've heard about Chinese Internet law that hasn't really at all dented their dominance. Yeah, and I'm curious in his case, you know, if he is just very quiet for a while or if he says anything else uh, about what's happened over the past couple of months and watching that all play out. Deirdre, in the meantime, what are people saying? Because, again, Alibaba, Tencent, JD, I mean, these are the companies that global investors have piled into because they've done so well. Now, I guess, like you said, it's a question of are they also going to go after these uh, Internet players or do they leave them alone for the time being? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. The lack of sort of regulatory framework in China has allowed them to become so big and dominant. But take a look over the last few sessions. I know we mentioned Alibaba at the top, but Tencent, um, Meituan, the Chinese food delivery company, I think combined those three companies have lost some $200 billion over the last few sessions alone. So this is already having an effect. And Kelly, it's so interesting to see how different that is the effect is on Chinese companies than it is for our own tech giants, which continue to just push higher in the face of greater regulatory scrutiny. But of course, this is China and the Communist Party don't necessarily need to prove their case to the public to take action. Um, so it could mean, you know, tough, tough times ahead for the companies and perhaps more opportunities for the smaller rivals. But at the same time, think about how many people Alibaba and Tencent hire. They employ in China and globally. So it would be a big hit for the economy in many ways too.
Exactly. That's what makes us so fascinating. Deirdre, appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa following that story for us. Thank you. Coming up, why the unusual character of this recession and the federal response to it could lead to an unusually quicker rebound. Yeah, that's right. We're going to talk to Greg Ip about it. Plus, the high-end real estate market began to see a rebound in the year end. It wasn't just your typical areas that were hot. We have the details in the outlook for 2021 there. And take a look at shares of Disney. They are up more than 3% to another all-time high. The stock was trading at $79 in March. It's at $179 today. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. This year's recession was unlike any we've seen before in the U.S. Not only was the cause unprecedented, but so too was the response from the government and the Fed. But that could lead to long-lasting positive changes for the economy. As this headline from The Wall Street Journal says, the economy next year could be a lot better than you think. Joining me now is the author of this piece, Greg Ip, the journal's chief economics commentator. Greg, it's great to have you. And uh, so you're not talking about this, you know, stimulus, but all the sort of short-term factors we are, we're usually going over here. What are some of the deeper changes that you think are positives? Well, Kelly, I think people almost right from the start have never fully grasped what is special about the recession we had. It wasn't a classic recession brought on by higher interest rates or tighter financial conditions. It was brought on by a natural disaster. And we know that once the disaster is over, supply, the ability to produce goods and services, springs back to where it was before. This has been a very long and deep and broad-based disaster, of course, but the principle still applies. We had a V-shaped rebound when lockdowns first ended, but we've never fully lifted all the restrictions. That will happen sometime in the next three or four months, God willing, assuming the vaccines remain effective and everybody gets vaccinated. And then you're just going to see enormous rebound in activity as people go out who have not been able to spend and they go out to spend. And the other key difference here is the policy response, Kelly, has just been like completely off the charts. Um, when you include mm -hmm. uh, the stimulus bill that the president signed yesterday, there has now been more of the share of GDP stimulus in less than two years than we had over five years during the Great Recession. All that money storing up, a ton of it to be spent in a matter of months. So I think that what you're looking ahead uh, is an outlook that is in many ways much more positive than I think most people have taken on board. Yeah, and, and also, Greg, I know you've written, and this is kind of separate, uh, but happening at the same time about why the pandemic has propelled businesses into the future. You know, all of these different technological changes. I mean, the NASDAQ tells you that story, the massive new customers that we have for all sorts of technology that have been brought forward into one year that would normally take, you know, four, five, six, ten years to play out. But I want to ask you, because it's not getting a lot of play today, but I think you bring up something really interesting about just how big the government response has been to the pandemic, especially with this latest bill. You know, it's something that Jim Paulson was talking about a couple of months ago, that, you know, we've had a much bigger response from the Fed and on the fiscal side. Is it too big? You know, in other words, all of the targeted help is one thing, but it, are the dollars that we're putting into the economy 
are the dollars, are the, is the balance sheet expansion that the Fed's doing, is it more than necessary? Is it going to cause problems uh, here as things normalize? Well, I think another feature of this recession, which is different from any of the others that you or I have uh, lived through, is that we went into it with monetary policy with very little ammunition, very short-term interest rates quite low. Uh, and therefore, the Fed basically used up all its ammo quickly, and that basically meant that you only had fiscal policy left. And so while the fiscal response has been much larger, and I think that's what Jim Paulson is talking about, the amount of debt we've taken on, it was in some sense, number one, necessary because we didn't have the usual firefighters at the Federal Reserve with as much um, equipment and ammunition. But number two, the very fact that interest rates are at zero means we can take on more debt at a lower price. So when I look at the aggregate numbers, even though the debt will come out of this with a debt much higher than before, interest rates have fallen so much that it's actually just as sustainable, if not more sustainable. I'll mm. tell you, Kelly, I worry less that the amount of debt is a problem. I worry more about just how wisely we're spending it. I mean, the idea that we need to keep sending people $600 checks, $2,000 checks, I'm not sure uh, the sky seems to be the limit. This country has a lot of needs. We have energy needs. We have education and retraining needs. We have all the investments we need to make to adjust to this increasingly virtual economy that we uh, that I wrote about. And I'm not sure that just sending out checks to people, 90% of whom still have jobs, is the wisest way to use what are, at the end of the day, still finite resources. Yeah, I mean, although it, that's kind of what Larry Summers was arguing as well. And I guess the, the fact that the $2,000 checks didn't advance tells you that there was some appetite, uh, but not an, an unlimited appetite for going that route. I, I know other commentators have said as well that if you look at the way that China responded in some cases, and they did direct stuff too, but, you know, it's infrastructure, it's stuff that could help in the long run. I just don't know. I mean, was this the moment to, you know, spend several billion dollars to fix the Amtrak tunnel, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I guess if, it, if, if there's jobs, that's one thing, um, but it just always feels like it's kind of the wrong fix for the wrong time. Well, in answer to the Amtrak tunnel, yes. The, the right time it was 10 years ago to fix that tunnel. And honestly, when interest rates are as low as they are, then that makes the case for um, public infrastructure investments with a very long, very high social rate of re payoff period, even more compelling. The problem in this country has always been that it just takes us so darned long to actually get all the permits and the political, um, you know, uh, uh, dominoes lined up mm -hmm. so that we can actually get the job done. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, President-elect Biden has fairly ambitious plans, you know, to invest more in green energy and so on. He's going to be facing a regulatory, judicial, and quite likely a Senate environment that's not necessarily sympathetic to, to spending public money on those things. Uh, but I do want to finish on one point, which you touched on earlier, Kelly, and that's the role of the Federal Reserve here. So I think that uh, the stock market may have gotten a bit ahead of itself, anticipating both the strength of the recovery and the, the extent to which a lot of these you know, asset-light models, whether it's DoorDash or Amazon, are going to benefit from it. And the usual story you get in a situation like this is that people get carried away, the economy is really strong, interest rates start to back up as they anticipate that usual inflationary surge and the Fed basically preemptively tightening. And that's what basically takes the air out of the stock market. That, too, might be a little bit different than usual because we have the Fed making this commitment basically to keep interest rates at zero till it sees inflation get to 2% and unemployment fall back to where it was before the pandemic, both of which could take a few years from now. So in my own mind, right. I haven't 
quite decided whether that really is an it's different this time uh, factor to take into consideration now or whether it's just another excuse to get carried away and perhaps one day regret the prices we're paying for equities. Or, or like a lot of people still think that it's true today, but it it won't be true tomorrow if the facts change. Uh, that's the the other issue is you know how do we know if they're going to stick to it? Greg, well, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah. Always good to check in with you. All right, we appreciate so it. Greg, get with the Wall Street right. Journal. Coming up after a quick break, the new Wonder Woman film making history this weekend, offering a glimpse of the future of the movie industry. Maybe we've got all the details. Plus, some have said that Bitcoin is the digital version of gold. Both have rallied big this year, though. We're going to look at what's driving these gains and whether they're both sustainable. Stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets, half past the hour. I see the Dow up about 189, so we're about 100 points off the highs. We were up 325 then. Two-thirds of percent gain, still we're well over 30,000, 30,390. The S&P's up 32. The Nasdaq's up 114. Both the S&P and Nasdaq up nine-tenths of a percent today. And you can see only two sectors are in the red right now, materials and energy, communication services, consumer discretionary. Those are up nearly 2%. Now, speaking of consumer discretionary, some strong retail numbers as we check on some of the moves this hour. Uh, take a look at some of these names. Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, all seeing nice gains today. Macy's is up 10%. TJX hitting an all-time high, again, for a company that was supposed to be hit really hard by having stores shut down. Uh, anyway, this is all after a report showing that holiday retail sales were up 3% with e-commerce jumping 49%. Elsewhere, shares of AstraZeneca are higher on news that its COVID-19 vaccine candidate is believed to be effective against a new variant of the virus in the UK. This vaccine expected to win approval from UK regulators this week, uh, AZN up 1.5%. And as the US government continues its rollout of COVID vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, CNBC Pro has consolidated the street's top healthcare analysts for best ideas for 2021. You can go check those out at cnbc.com pro. Speaking of pros, let's get over to Leslie Picker now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Kelly. Thank you. Tennessee authorities investigating the Nashville suicide bombing say once tips from the public pointed them in the direction of Anthony Warner, they were able to match DNA from a hat and glove in a vehicle he owned. They also used vehicle identification numbers found in the wreckage to connect the RV that exploded to his registration records. 
The U.S. Justice Department is appealing a judge's order earlier this month that blocks the Commerce Department from effectively prohibiting the popular Chinese-owned video sharing app TikTok in the U.S. And in anticipation of a rebound in travel after the pandemic, J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to buy privately held CX Loyalty, one of the country's largest third-party credit card loyalty program operators. That's according to a person with knowledge of the deal. Uh, it's exciting to just think about uh, accumulating points and, and traveling once again, Kelly. It's been a while. Back over to you. I'm Almost thinking about traveling again. Almost. Almost sounds exciting again. (laughs) Pack that suitcase, go to the airport. Leslie, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We'll see you later. Our Leslie Picker. Coming up, streaming got its first big test against theaters this weekend. The value of the video game industry is even bigger than you might think. And the bullishness for Bitcoin continues. It's all ahead in rapid fire on the exchange. We're back in a couple. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Brian Sullivan, Seema Modi, and Steve Kovac. Welcome, everybody. We begin with another day, another record high for Bitcoin. I, it's just crazy watching it. The cryptocurrency went above 28,000. Remember, it only broke above 20,000 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, then paired those gains. This is a three-month meteoric rise now, its longest win streak in over a year. The controversial crypto may also be edging closer to the mainstream, according to CNBC's quarterly stock report, which is out today. 58% of those surveyed said their clients will most likely buy their first Bitcoin in 2021. 33% said they'll get into SPACs next year. Only 9% are considering their first options contract. Uh, Sully, what do you think? Well, I mean, listen, if everybody's piling into an asset class or a commodity, whatever you want to call it, with very fixed supply, what do you think is going to happen to prices? I think the biggest Bitcoin bull case, say that 10 times fast, you can make is that there will only ever be 21 million. I understand they divide them up into Satoshis and everything else. But as a macro level, there's only 21 million. I think 18 and a half million have been mined. Can you imagine, Kelly, if Amazon had 21 million shares outstanding or Tesla? They have a billion shares outstanding or even more. So I think that limited supply, huge funds, the retailer getting involved, just be careful. It can be certainly, I think, pushed around. Mark Yusko agreed to that the other day when we were on WEX together. And by the way, Bitcoin price today searches on Google are up 750% year over year. Nothing to worry about there. Seema, it's interesting to me because some things are different this time versus 2017. Like you... The t- but it is going mainstream. It feels like three years ago, it was more of like a, hey, did you hear about this cool new thing? And some people were, were kind of cultishly talking about it. Now, today, it's more I, I see kind of people in the general public who are asking, what's going on with Bitcoin? Like, what explains this? And, and we've talked a lot about this, right? You have big yeah. name investors who say, yeah, it's probably got some staying power. You have institutional money just starting to pour in. And we're talking about trillions of dollars, potentially, you know, at least upwards of $300 billion. If you just kind of take, you know, half a percent of G4 portfolios. I mean, so like Brian said, if you have a fixed supply and increased demand, the price keeps going up, I guess. 
And all of that now leading to Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency platform, now on course to go public sometime next year, a company that has a private valuation of $8 billion. And what this IPO could potentially provide is greater level of transparency on data around volume, transactions, the average customer profile. Sure, we have a lens into that type of data from multiple different companies, but imagine having that level of information as an investor on a quarterly basis to really get a sense of how many retail investors are putting their money where their mouth is, not just on Twitter, uh, and actually into Bitcoin. I think that could really help elevate this conversation just intellectually, psychologically, whatever you want to say uh, about where this goes from here, because that data can be really powerful. Uh, Kovac, I'll just give you a quick last word on it. Oh, man, Bitcoin can go to a trillion or it can go to nothing, right? So it's it, I've been covering Bitcoin since 2012 or 2013. And the craze about it just seems to be someone heard from someone that I made money on it when you talk about the average person getting into it. And yeah, it's just it's, it's extremely volatile. And I, I don't know, it just makes me nervous. I've seen it go both ways. It's gotten so professionalized now that I just think the ultimate move would be Satoshi reveals himself. It goes, you know, forget the 21 million cap. <laughs> ah, what the hell? It was a fun experiment. It worked. We got everybody into it. You know, now you're all suckers. But I guess that's not going to happen. Uh, let's talk about uh, what's been going be on in the box office. Us, Wonder Woman 19. It would be a great story, period. Wonder Woman 1984 scored the highest box office opening of the pandemic, a whopping $16 million. HBO says about half of HBO Max subscribers watched it on the same day of that release. Now, it's dual success so encouraging. Warner's apparently fast-tracking the third film now. Uh, but, Steve, does this validate Warner's decision to do a simultaneous release? Or are we going to see them drop that strategy, which has not gone over well with Hollywood, you know, once the pandemic lifts? Oh, boy. Well, first of all, I got to say, and I know Brian agrees with me on this one, uh, the movie was a disappointment. <laughs> I, I loved the first movie. I was super into it. I thought Patty Jenkins, the director, did a great job. And this movie was just confusing and I couldn't follow it. And I, to be honest, I tuned out through, through most of it. But that did not stop people from watching. And we had a record in the pandemic in theaters and we had huge streaming numbers. Now, HBO slash Warner Media is being a little confusing about how they report the streaming numbers, and that could perhaps be to the tension between its decision to release all those movies on HBO Max at the same time as theaters and what we're hearing from directors like Chris Nolan um, about that decision. They want their movies in theaters. But it proved there's this pent-up demand, even in the middle of a pandemic, even with theaters at part capacity, 50% capacity, People are going. People showed up to the theater to watch this movie despite the safety concerns. And at the same time, it was a huge winner on streaming. If you count the number of people in yeah. households, millions of households streamed it, triple that. And you have, I don't know, 20, 30 million people who watched this movie over the weekend. That's huge. More eyeballs probably saw it this weekend than saw the original movie three years ago back in theaters. But Brian, did they, did they all think it was terrible? I mean, you guys, you guys are two out of two here with the with the thumbs down. I didn't make it through the movie. I mean, uh, the Rotten Tomato—it was confusing. I, I didn't really understand what was going on. But anyway, the Tomato Meter, Rotten Tomatoes, has like a sixty-five. But the, to Steve's point, does it have to be good? It's something new. It's something shiny, right? I think at this point in time, especially in the Northeast, where you know it's it's March three hundred and twelfth. We're all looking for something new. By the way, you'll thank me later. Check out the Brazilian movie instead, Baccarat. A little weird, it's in Portuguese, but you'll thank me later on that one. <laughs>
little weird Portuguese. Uh, no gracias, however you say that in Portuguese. I'm going to skip that one, I think. Obrigado. Let's talk about video games. That's Obrigada. another option. If you don't want to watch Wonder Woman 1984, you can play video games. The Animal Crossing uh, to the flop that was Cyberpunk 2077. We know that these have been huge fixtures this year, but we've got some numbers behind it. This is just how big 2020 has been for the industry. The global video game revenue is on track to reach nearly $180 billion this year. That's a 20% increase just from last year according to IDC. That also makes this industry bigger than the global film industry and North American sports this year combined. Now, this even refers to the industry last year. We're not talking about this pandemic crippled uh, movie industry. So, I mean, this is where, Steve, it's interesting. We know that video games have been huge. We know people are pouring resources into this whole thing, but does this become, I, I think about the NBA, this is not a perfect analogy, but a couple of years ago, it seemed like they had everything going right. The Warriors were amazing and the, all these, you know, the new style of play and every, every, it was like the NFL was struggling, but they were having a moment. And then, I don't know, they, it feels like they're in the middle of a reset right now. Could the same thing happen for video games? Is there any way that the whole industry needs to go through some kind of reset or do you think they're just going to keep growing and growing? Yeah, right now oh, it seems to be in growing. the sweet spot, oh, Kelly. Uh, but I think the question is, will that continue as we, if we do leave our households next year, once the vaccine is made available, do we leave the video games behind us? Because right now there does seem to be this fascination with uh, any type of a video game out there, fewer people wanting to leave the house. This is just the perfect way to socialize without having to quarantine. And looking at video games through, the, through some of my family members who are obsessed with them, uh, they, I, I can see it. It's sort of this, sort of this relationship they've now built uh, with, the, with the, the actual game they play, the characters. I mean, it's really interesting to see how that all played out this year. And quick last word from you, Steve. Yeah, and can we just admit, video games are mainstream now. People my age who grew up playing in the 80s and 90s are now adults with families and kids, and they're still playing these games. And I, I don't know about you, I got really excited when the New York Times pushed a story on their app about cyberpunk's uh, debacle, and that just proves it has entered the mainstream consciousness because a lot of people have aged out who weren't playing video games, and we have a whole new generation coming up that this has always been part of their life, and even into adulthood and middle age, <laughs> it's part of their life. It's only going to grow. It's a good-looking cat, Steve. you got a nice-looking cat. Look oh, over your left Larry. shoulder, Steve. <laughs> Hi, Larry. He made this a scene to you. Gave you by Purina. Hey, <laughs> he looked like he was He's a gamer too. He was licking his chops. All right, finally, before we go, in very Grinch-like fashion, the internet dog? domain company GoDaddy shows us how not to run a cybersecurity test for companies this year. GoDaddy sent a staff-wide email wishing everyone happy holidays and announcing a bonus. But if you tried to open or redeem that email, it turned out to be a phishing scam test. GoDaddy says it has apologized to upset employees who felt the email wasn't sensitive. But Brian, this seems like the, the worst corporate phishing test of all time. Well, first off, it just wasn't a good test because the idea behind phishing is that the email address maybe looks like something it should be, but if you open the whole thing, you see it's got some weird sort of extensions on it as well. It looks like from the emails that I saw some publications had, it looks like it just literally came from GoDaddy. It promised $650. So number one, it got everybody's hopes up, womp. Secondly, let's not forget, GoDaddy had a bunch of layoffs a couple of months ago. So not only are you laying people off, you're tightening the ship up, 
Now you're pro- it's just a fail. That was sort of the Wonder Woman 1984 phishing scams. Not good. Seema, last word. I mean, I can't watch Wonder Woman now. We have two bad reviews, but I did update my TV now, so I feel like I have to watch this action movie, right? That's the difference this time around. Uh, no, GoDaddy, this is a total, fair, fa- total fail, a sore eye. Hopefully they can recover. Yeah, and, and everybody knows this is like a big year for cyber. All these companies have to do these tests because they're all, everyone's off-premise now. All their systems are vulnerable. I, un- I understand why they're trying to be like super cave, safe and, and careful, but this is the wrong way to go about it. Larry, it's been a pleasure to have you here uh, for Rapid Fire today <laughs> along with Steve Kovac, Seema Modi, and Brian Sullivan. And Brian, I'll see you in a couple. Appreciate it, guys. Coming up, it's not just the suburbs seeing a uh, surge in home sales. We'll get a look at the often overlooked real estate markets that were hot in 2020. See if the momentum can continue next. Don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back. Despite massive economic uncertainty, the luxury real estate market was strong in 2020. And it looks like the momentum will push into 21. According to my next guest, secondary markets are leading the way, with sales in luxury vacation destinations up 34% year-on-year as of the end of September. But will these trends slow down as vaccines roll out and travel and normalcy resume? Joining me now to discuss is Jeff Hyland. He's Forbes Global Properties founder. Jeff, it's good to have you. We know this has been such a strong segment of the housing market, which, broadly speaking, has had a, a huge 2020. So what tells you that this is going to last and that it wasn't all pulled forward? All right. Thank you, Kelly. It, it is going to last, and it's, uh, it's good news going into 2021. Um, there's been a very strong demand for people who are looking for backyards, uh, walk streets, uh, secondary neighborhoods, uh, unfortunately fleeing some high-rise uh, locations, which will come around in turn. But it has really fueled our market. And uh, at the high end, we've uh, seen a very, very strong response. We've had some record sales. Uh, I'm based in Beverly Hills. But through the Forbes Global Properties Initiative, which we started about uh, maybe two weeks ago, we have now in excess of 70 markets, very, very strong response with people who uh, are looking to invest with very low interest rates. And uh, see, this is a very, very good time in which to uh, expand outside of uh, major markets into secondary markets. But at the same time, strong markets like the Hamptons, Florida, Texas and Southern California are doing extremely well. It, so it's interesting that you guys are launching this. So Forbes Global Properties is a membership-only portal for elite real estate firms. So tell me how this works. Is this something that anybody can access, but only a few companies can be involved, or is it something that even if there are buyers, that they need you know special access in order to look at these properties? It's been a long time coming, and I, I don't understand why it hasn't been done before, but we're very happy to be the first uh, movers of it. Uh, Forbes has about 140 million unique visitors on a monthly basis to its site. And we decided, why not have these same people looking at high net worth properties uh, in the over $2 million range uh, off the site? So, um we went to Forbes. They loved the concept. In fact, they loved it so much that they are vested partners, uh, minority partners with us. We are already in uh, 
50% of our, our traffic is now outside the United States. We think it'll be about 75, 25% when we're fully up and running. And we'll be in about 100 markets altogether uh, where there, we do not have a, uh, a member. We'll allow uh, other brokers to come into the network to advertise on the site uh, so we can gain that yeah. uh, access to the 140 million unique monthly visitors. That's unheard of with a brand that is uh, over 100 years old and is basically one of the best known global brands uh, out there. Oh, sure. No, it absolutely is. A Zillow for the uber rich, as the LA Times put it. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us to talk about it and the broader trends in the market. It's good to see you. Thank you. Kelly, thank you. Jeff Highland is with Forbes Global Properties. Still ahead, gold had a record high this year as investors sought safety during the pandemic. How the big investors are playing it and the rookie mistakes to avoid are next when the exchange comes right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. The weak dollar and Fed stimulus making it a banner year for many asset classes. Bitcoin especially up more than 260 percent. But gold having a decent run of its own up 24, 25 percent. Eric Chemi joins me now with a closer look at who's part of the gold rush. Eric? Kelly, that's right. As gold prices have soared this year, individual investors and collectors are buying up gold coins in record numbers. The U.S. Mint telling CNBC its bullion sales since October 1st are over 700% higher than a year ago. Michael Whitmire, the founder of gold retailer JM Bullion, says the pandemic has led investors to buy safer, hard assets amidst economic uncertainty. You see Bitcoin setting new highs. You know, Pokemon cards are, are uh, soaring in value. So like you said, all these hard assets seem to be performing really well. And I think it's the same thesis across the board. Whitmire says his customers have been worried about increased government spending leading to a larger money supply, a weaker dollar, and possible long-term inflation. Most long-term investors take physical delivery of their gold, usually keeping, keeping it at their homes outside of bank control. Whitmire thinks the demand surge can keep going. We've seen our revenues have actually tripled year over year. We've added over 300,000 new customers this year. Uh, that's an enormous number for us, and it indicates just the tremendous demand for precious metals products, particularly from people who are new to the marketplace. Uh, so certainly surprised I could have never foreseen this level of demand um, prior to coming into this year. Whitmire says his biggest customers have ramped up purchases this year, in addition to the huge spike of first-time buyers buying physical gold for the long run. Quick price slippers, they'd be much better off trading an ETF. For brand new buyers, the key factor in buying physical gold efficiently is minimizing the premium you pay over spot price. JM Bullion's premium is around $40 an ounce. Some buyers, though, they make the mistake of paying hundreds of dollars of premium, and they can't make a profit even if those underlying gold prices spike up a lot. Kelly, over to you. I'm glad you're an educated gold buyer now. I hope that, you know, pays off. Uh, you know, I guess we, I already looked under the Christmas tree. I didn't, I don't, I don't know. I didn't see any gold coins. It's too expensive this year. Maybe next year things, things are cheaper. <laughs> Once it corrects. That's how we do it around here. 
Eric, thank you very much, Eric Chemi. That does it for The Exchange. Up next on Power Lunch, we are going to talk to the executive director of one of the busiest container ports in North America. We'll talk about how 2020 actually set record trade levels. Also, the ongoing trade imbalance we're still running with countries like China. I'll join Brian Sullivan for a lot more after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.